This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Thanks very much everyone for coming along to this Way Seeking Mind talk. I really appreciate it. Um, I was concerned that um, when people saw that it wasn't the Andrew giving a talk that they might not come, so thank you for coming. <laughs> um, and it's really nice to be able to share uh, my journey with you. Um, and, and as Andrew has said, a way seeking mind talk is a great way for, for us to hear interesting things um, about each other um, and to inspire each other and to see how it is we all ended up here doing this practice and sitting here together on Zoom today. So I'm really happy to join in this endeavor with you. And um, my dog puppy is here joining in as well. So I'll just, I just want to say, first of all, um, what I think is good to include in the Way Seeking Mind talk, and then that kind of forms the structure for the rest of it. So it's part personal biography. So that's like spiritual influences and how they fit, you know, in the shape and context of a human life. The emergence of searching. So recognize, you know, having some sort of curiosity that there's something more and then beginning to recognize our spirituality in one way or another as we move through different life phases and I think it's good to acknowledge that part of the journey for many of us can be phases of deep disillusionment and despair and perhaps depression and other problems um, and then there's sort of where your spirituality really takes a firm shape, like us being here now and practicing. Um, and so I'll give a little spiritual resume because I have practiced in some different traditions. And at the end, I'd just like to share with you a sense of my own spiritual mojo. Um, I asked my sons this morning if that was a daggy word. <laughs> and um, it's a, and my oldest son said, it's okay because you're old and so you can say it, but a young person might not say it. But anyway, um, and sort of my aesthetic and, um, and my way of thinking about spirituality and also what appear to have been fruits, the fruits of practice that I've experienced so far. So I'll start off with a bit of like background. Um, I am a... I, I consider myself to be an unconventional, quirky, dorky, and a little embarrassing person. And I think I've been challenging to people around me in various ways in my life. One of the beautiful things about Zen and how it's taking shape right now in the West, I think, is the potential for a very accepting and inclusive culture. It really has that possibility. Um, that Zen can be an expression of our enjoyment and appreciation of difference. Um, at its core, it invites us to discover our very best selves, um, as unique and interesting as they are. 
And I think encouraging acceptance of each other and diversity is a really important part of modern Buddhism. Um, in my early life, um, I grew up in Canberra, not in a Christian family, not any religion. And um, I went to a primary school there and um, there was a church beside the primary school and I really wanted to go to the church. <laughs> but um, yeah, Christianity definitely wasn't a part of what we did. Um, I thought about just wandering in there myself, um, but I never ended up doing that. Um, we were raised as free, free range kids of the 70s. Um, so we basically did whatever we wanted and wandered off as long as we were home by the time the street lights came on. I don't know if other people had a sort of similar um, growing up experience. Um, where I grew up was in, as I said, it was in Canberra and just on the edge of a suburb. So just, just on a hill and just over that hill, there was cows and horses and um, about a three kilometre walk to the Murrumbidgee River. So all of us kind of adventured in that direction and, and also or just wandered the suburbs and doing all sorts of things. Um, recently, I went back to visit Canberra and I went to walk the street that I grew up on. It was really interesting. It is really nice because it's a loop street that goes up to the top of the hill and back down. And it's called Monkman Street. So I went to Monkman Street um, and it dawned on me as I was wandering around, oh, I'm the monk man. Um, it reminded me of how the abbot of a Zen temple is named after the mountain that the temple is on. My um, spirituality as a young person, a child and a teenager, revealed itself as an interest in quirky, the quirky new age interests of a couple of relatives of mine, my stepmom, and, um, and a very interesting, and one of my aunts, a very interesting Northern Rivers hippie who got into um, everything. I learned about astrology, palmistry, numerology, power of crystals, and my Northern Rivers aunt took me on an adventure through these things to Reiki, couple of fortune tellers and all those sorts of things. Um, when, when I was 18, I went to see a fortune teller and um, it, was, it was a good experience. And this person said to me, and this was surprising because I was a challenging and um, uh, teenager who got into quite a lot of trouble. And, um, and this person said, when you're older, it's going to be all about love for you. And, and then he said, he looked at me and said, you knew that, didn't you? And I said, yes. But so that was very surprising because I didn't know that I knew that. Um, my first venture into spirituality or experience of spirituality more akin to what we do now was reading Khalil Gibran. I don't know if any of you guys have read Khalil Gibran. Yeah, and um, he was introduced to us in grade 12 by our English teacher and debating coach. Um, and that really affected me a lot. And the first time I heard anything about Zen um, was a story on the radio when I was 22. 
I was doing honours in maths at the ANU at the time. And, and at the time, I had no sense of how we build prisons for ourselves, how we can build prisons for ourselves with, with, with our minds. And so I had no tools really to deal with the intense, intense anxiety of doing honours in a completely male-dominated subject and the intense feeling of imposter syndrome that I experienced in doing that. So it was at that time that I heard this Zen story on ABC Radio National that introduced me to the vibe and sense of mystery of Zen. I don't remember the particulars of the story, but it was something about how um, someone goes to meet the master. Um, a seeker goes to meet um, the Zen master and the Zen master says, you know, go off on a journey, go and do something. And so the person goes off for 10 years and then comes back to the Zen master and says, here I am, Zen master. And, um, and the Zen master says, off you go, go again. Um, and then another 10 years later, the student comes back and goes, here I am. And, uh, and finally the Zen master does it one, one more time, off you go. And then um, the person comes back and the Zen master says, now you're ready. And um, something about that stayed with me. And, you know, I like the way how it um, captures the idea that we have kind of quite distinct life phases that we, that we go through, marked by relationships and living in different places and jobs and times of struggle, possibly going off the rails for a while, um, friend groups, spiritual interests, um, whatever it is for each person. And I'm sure there's a huge array of, um, of these kinds of story amongst the people in the Zoom, on this Zoom gathering right now. Um, shortly after, after hearing that story, um, a life arc began for me, a very significant one. Um, and that was that I became very unwell um, I was diagnosed with lupus when I was 16 and when I was 22, 23, I got really, really sick. And the next six years were very much involved in the lifestyle of being, doing medical things, specialists, got regularly going to hospital and things like that. And, you know, so at that age, at sort of 23, I experienced this huge loss of physical vitality um, and it, I felt it very profoundly. Um, I was a high achiever and I wasn't ready to let go of that life story. So I, even when I, I went through six years of chemotherapy, going to hospital regularly, I still ploughed through a master's degree and a, and a PhD. Um, and I actually lived off a master's scholarship and a PhD scholarship to feed myself while I went through medical treatment. Um, and then sort of the next period in my 30s, um, I undertook, you know, the journey of parenthood and have two sons, um, marriage, and I worked as an academic, but not for very long because illness took me out of that at age 37. Um, also through all of this, from about age 14, I've experienced varying degrees of depression, um, sometimes very, very severe, and have been lucky enough to have access to therapy and medication um, when I've needed it. Um, I'm really interested in this school of Zen for this reason. And, you know, I have to say that Dharma practice has actually been incredibly helpful um, in dealing with depression for me. 
uh, but I've also had a lot of therapy. And um, I think, you know, practice can really help the therapy in the sense that, um, as Joko put it, it gives you a bigger perspective, you know, as she calls a bigger container. And then you have a good place from which to, to do your therapy. Although I did most of the therapy before I came to practice. Um, and I think it's, it's really useful to have someone to go through the real particulars of your personal suffering because there's a lot of people who think that, you know, the practice itself um, is enough. And I think you can miss a lot um, if you don't look at the real deep particulars of your own suffering. Um, and, and, you know, when we can come to see the particulars of our own suffering, then we're able to include them eventually. Um, and then we, as much as we can open to and include, the more integrated and happy we can be. So this has been an ongoing factor in my life and I really hit rock bottom at age 40. Um, I was just intensely depressed. Um, and it was, I think it was because it was so bad, um, I kind of started to see that I could, I, I sort of somehow was able to start to step out from under it to some extent. Um, to sort of put some of my psychological stresses aside to see what would happen. Um, and so, and I started practicing not long after that. And I think that that was a lucky sort of preparation for that. So it was when I was 42, which is 10 years ago now that I first went to a Goenka retreat. And so I was really, really ready. Um, and I think it really affected me profoundly and um, really kicked off my practice. Um, since then, I've done Zen in the Ordinary Mind School and lately also Koan study, which I absolutely love. Um, I've also done practices from the Pali canon-based things like Vipassana and Insight. And I'm actually really grateful to have had experiences in these different areas because they all have great things about them. So anyway, this has been the practice phase of, of my life has been the last um, 10 years. Um, so they're the basic story arcs of my life. Um, so I feel like, you know, in this Zen story from the Zen master, this sense of going, okay, I'm back now. And the master saying, okay, you're good to go now. A bit like that. <laughs> um, so hi everyone, here we all are together. Um, and isn't that interesting that we've all ended up here together? Um, so now I'm just going to talk about spiritual mojo and aesthetics and, aesthetics and fruits of practice. So this is probably a bit less depressing because um, Andrew said, you know, with a talk, it's better not to have it as a tragedy. You want to have it to have the shape more like a, of a romantic comedy. So something challenging in the middle and then moving to something happy at the end. <laughs> so, um, so in terms of spiritual mojo, I think the superpower that's emerged from my practice is generally um, a sense of goodwill. 
and this is really pleasant and I just find it much harder now to be mean to people and I have a really strong sense of wanting to be someone that people can trust and that that means a lot to me and that I'm able to really listen and, and hear people and that um, and that combined with a firm sense of the ridiculous is where I'm at. One of the things I really like is the idea of doing Dharma that's not pretentious and ideally would pass the pub test. I presume here everyone knows what the pub test is. So the pub test is the idea that you can just talk to regular people at the pub about things in a way that doesn't make them just think you're silly and stop listening. But it doesn't have to be a pub literally, it just means, let's say anything that's not a Dharma center, that you can have normal conversations and that Dharma can be a part of those conversations without you know sticking it in people's faces. Um, and the other, the other test of plain speaking Dharma is, can you talk to your teenager about it? Because you know, if you're a teenager, just says, oh, and rolls their eyes, and says, shut up, mum. You know you, you're, you're off the mark. So, and you know you cannot dharma-splain a teenager. So, you know, I love the idea of, of plain speaking dharma. And so I've been thinking about this idea of not self. Um, anatta, or whatever you want to call it, in terms of plain speech. And I was kind of noticing that even though we, you know, we come at Buddhism and this is a really central idea and we think it's very esoteric and so forth, it actually um, kind of turns up quite a lot in regular speech. And I find that intuitive understanding of not-self really, really interesting. Um, and, you know, I just want to say Dharma is learning to... In, in some sense, not to do things which are actually counterproductive to our own well-being. And so this is useful for everybody. And it doesn't have to be restricted to people who um, sort of identify as hippies or have particular political persuasions or anything like that. It's just normal life. <laughs> so here's some examples um, of talking about non-self in a normal way that people say all the time and note here that these expressions are observations that people make in everyday life about the unhealthy ways of experiencing selfhood or the just plain annoying ones so we like people who don't take themselves too seriously we admire people who are selfless and we might not like it when people are self-absorbed, selfish, self-serving, self-important and on the list, on it goes with that list. And very tellingly, we don't like people who are full of themselves as opposed to being empty of self. Um, another common understanding about this is when people talk about taking things personally because everyone knows it really hurts when we take things personally. And people might say, don't, don't take it personally. Um, 
but the fact is we've all kind of built you know when we grow up we've built a cognitive framework that contextualize that we use to contextualize all of our experience and so we place things in in space and time and in terms of a self here and other things over there and this is just a very natural and helpful way to relate to the world um, so when we say don't think take things personally um, we are in fact taking this cognitive framework to be who we actually are and then so we have this cognitive framework which is just a way of you know gives us an orientation in the world but then also um, we add all of a whole lot of beliefs and opinions about the kind of person we are the kind of person they are and also all of our hurts and our personal histories and everything sort of get piled on top of this framework as well um, and then so we're you know heavily identified um, with all of this and we don't understand that we don't have to take that step of saying this is who I am and um, you know any any sense in which we are able to see that we are not our thoughts feelings and histories is going to is going to help us and so when we have this framework for understanding the world which is just a natural part of development um, and we pile on um, you know all of our life experiences as well in our definition of self it gets very very heavy and um, with you know therapy and practice we can start to look at this and I think enlightenment you know which literally means getting lighter is we're able to see through this and hopefully abandon some of our more neurotic um, ways of being in the world which cause us enormous suffering Um, I heard, I watched The Godfather the other day and you probably, you probably know in those sort of movies when they're about to kill someone they say, it's not personal, it's business, right? So that's another thing of saying, you know, it's not, it's not personal and I think um, Dharma people, it's actually a bit Dharma-fied because it's a bit like saying, it's not personal it's just dependent arising and so it's like giving someone a dharma talk before you kill them <laughs> um, and you can say about absolutely everything not just murdering people that this is not um, it's not personal it's dependent arising um, and so generally speaking, I really enjoy noticing anything that can be construed as Dharma um, in movies, TV shows, popular music, or wherever, wherever you can find it. Um, I also have an interest in Grumpy Cat. So I don't know if you know Grumpy Cat. This is called Grumpy Cat, a Grumpy Book. And there's actually 
quite a lot of um, amusing semi-dharma in Grumpy Cat. And I also think that Joko Beck was at times a bit of a grumpy cat. So I find this quite interesting. And I'll, I suppose I'll just open a couple of pages. Yeah, I haven't gone on too long, so. So the first page says, it's not me, it's you. Now that's probably not very Dharma-ish. Um, but it's not completely unreasonable either because um, sometimes people do things and it really isn't about us. And the next page says, every new beginning ends. And so that's a lot like a rising and passing away. And the next page says, I had fun once, it was awful. And actually, <laughs> actually, you know, um, sometimes when people are talking about Buddhism and impermanence and so forth, they do talk about the pain associated with if you're attaching to something enjoyable, then there's the pain of it stopping. So that's how we make that dharmic. Um, so anyway, and I just want to say about Grumpy Cat, I'll just say a Grumpy Cat thing that Joko Beck said, but it's actually really interesting, challenging and interesting as well. Um, because Joko Beck was, you know, certainly an iconoclast. Um, I heard this in a talk by Matt Barry Majid, and he was, in, was looking at the question of what does it mean to be enlightened? And she said, um, as quoted by Barry, something like, if you were to lose both arms and both legs, would you be okay with that? Now, I, I like this because obviously it's a bit, um, it's a bit grumpy cat, but also it really brings, brings, brings out the fact that, um, you know, enlightenment is not a thing about arrogance. And um, I think it's, it's a humbling reflection. So finally, I'll just talk about fruits of practice um, because last night I thought, oh, I'll just write down, you know, what's different in my life now since I started practicing over these 10 years. And just to be really honest and just say, so um, these are the things that I wrote down. Um, and this is just really practical things. Greater maturity such as accepting responsibility and not blaming others so much. Having greater ethical clarity. Being more assertive and confident. Coping better psychologically with having lupus. Having better and more enjoyable relationships and more enjoyment of life in general. More self-acceptance and less self-loathing. Self so when I wrote these things down last night, I thought that's actually genuinely awesome. <laughs> because I'd never really sat down and thought and done a reflection like that. I thought that's actually really, really cool. Um, so I thought it would be nice to share that. And you know, along with this greater sense of maturity, it's been a greater sense of immaturity as well. 
Um, so I like that, that I accept my own um, childlike aspects. And uh, finally, I just want to say that, you know, this idea of practice and, and having practice move you towards a greater sense of goodwill is just really nice. It's such a healthy place to be and it's good for you and it's good for everybody. It's deeply satisfying and it's also really contagious just having a basic sense of goodwill. Um, okay, that's all. That'll do. Thank you. Um, if anyone wants to ask something, you're very welcome. Or make a comment or whatever. But anyway, thank you for listening. I appreciated it. In the beginning, you said it's because you're um, different. And I think most of us can probably say that we're different or grew up knowing that we were different. So yeah. thank you for that. Thank you very much, Jack. It's very honest and open of you. Thank you. Thanks, Elizabeth. So just feel free to unmute, you, unmute yourself and um, speak if you'd like to. Anne, did you want to say something? Um, oh, that was wonderful. It was lovely listening to you express yourself i yeah really appreciate it thank you oh thanks Anne. i felt like it was a bit boring but anyway no not at all not, not, at, all. not, not at all no okay i'm glad about that Michael, did you want to say something? Oh. Um, hi, Jack. I, I just, just wanted to go, yeah. I, I really <laughs> loved it. And it's great, great um, to hear your story um, and what's, um, what's, what's real for you. Um, just, just feel blessed hearing your truth. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. You're all frozen. Yeah, frozen. You're frozen to us, Michael. Now you're back. Can you hear us? Yes. Yeah. 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 I can hear. Hi, it's Marco here. Um, hey, Marco. Yeah. Hey, uh, Jack, just... Uh, Thank you for uh, yeah, sharing your story. Like Michael said, I think anything like that takes a degree of, of courage. It's like you're taking a little leap. Wow. You know, well, I, um, and it's also this, hopefully you've got this inner knowledge that there's a, a trust within the group that we're going to em embrace your story and, and really be grateful for what you've contributed to us. So thank you very much for taking the plums today. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much, Michael. I would like to say that um, even though you were allowing your vulnerability to come out, I did feel a power in there. There was a sort of sense parts of what you've said will stay with us because they were so genuine and so raw and so fresh and so alive. 
and, and joyful to all the childish stuff, you know, connecting with the child as well as having the maturity. <laughs> Thanks, Louise. Uh, hi, David. Hi. Um, I just wanted to come in with something that I hope will lead to sort of a bit of discussion. Um, maybe there's a question in there somewhere. Um, and, and thanks again, ditto every, what everyone said, um, really enjoyed your willingness to just kind of share who you are in the moment, even as much as you'd obviously done a lot of work preparing um, something to present. And um, this something stayed with me about what you said about um, causing us a lot of suffering and I can't remember what that was in reference to but it just brought up the question for me um, I guess we all have a maybe quite a personal definition of suffering and 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 that's a, probably a good good reference point that I've used and tried to be aware of oh if I'm just causing myself suffering is even if it's in the name of something that's supposedly worthy or good for me personally if it if it feels like suffering i guess i'm just curious maybe you could say a little bit about how you kind of define or recognize suffering for yourself and maybe if anyone else had anything to say or whether there is a sort of even a sort of uh, a sense of a buddhist definition of what suffering is because it does get used that word gets used in english and i'm not sure if it's a direct translation of a of a Sanskrit or another language down the line. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just a very, you know, Buddhism just gives a very general sort of definition of suffering or, you know, talks about suffering. But, you know, like if you've been through therapy, you know the layers and, um, you know, all the self states and so on that we create and 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 suffering is emerges from that and yet we just put it all under this umbrella turn these umbrella terms in buddhism and so that's why i really appreciate i've had a lot of therapy and i really appreciate it 